Welcome, everybody, to The Intersection, a series on the IQT podcast where we discuss topics relating to the intersection of technology and national security. Today's guest is Will Hurd. Last year, he authored the book American Reboot, an idealist guide to getting big things done, which provides a detailed blueprint for America grounded by pragmatic idealism, a concept forged by in, from enduring American values to achieve what is actually achievable. Will is currently a managing director at Allen & Company and former member of Congress, cybersecurity executive and undercover agent uh, officer, sorry, undercover officer in the CIA. For almost two decades, he's been involved in the pre- most pressing national security issues, challenging the country, whether it's the back alleys of dangerous places, boardrooms of top international businesses, or the halls of Congress. Will is also joined as one of Inkytel's newest uh, Board of Trustees members. Members, So, Will, welcome to The Intersection. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Steve. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. Uh, I, I want to get into the themes from your book and, and, and your experience, but I just think you have such a unique background that it's worth uh, 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 talking a little bit more about that in depth. So you grew up in uh, 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 Texas, is my understanding. Uh, what made you first uh, decide to join the CIA? Well, it, it all started my freshman year in college. Um, my degree was in computer science. I was studying computer science and I'm walking in our engineering school and I see a sign to take two journalism classes in Mexico City for $425. And I had 450 bucks in my bank account. So I decided to go to Mexico and fell in love being in another culture. I thought it was cool seeing things I'd only read about in books. And I added international studies as a minor. This is right when the, uh, the George Bush School was created at A&M. And we had a guest lecturer in my first international studies class who was this former CIA tough guy. He was the former ADDO for CI. So he was the um, assistant director for operations for counterintelligence. Like this guy caught, you know, he was involved in catching Aldrich Ames, um, legend. And he told these amazing stories in our class. And I was like, I want to do that. And, and that began my interest. And then um, three years later, um, I, I interviewed, I wrote, signed, and did an application and an interview and, and started in the CIA at 22 when I graduated from undergrad. Um, it was awesome. That's fantastic. And I won't ask you that much about what you did there, because that's always challenging to talk about. But let's fast forward to uh, why did you decide to leave the agency and what did you want to do next? Well, look, when, when I was in the CIA, my, my, I was a case officer. So my job was to recruit spies and steal secrets. Um, best job on the planet. I was primarily overseas. Um, I was in India for two years, Pakistan for two years. I uh, did some interagency work in New York for two years. And then I managed all of our undercover operations in Afghanistan for a year and a half. And, you know, in addition to, you know, look, my career started the day of the USS Cole bombing. Um, You know, this was probably the first time most Americans had ever heard of Al-Qaeda, even though Al-Qaeda had done some attacks in Africa, the Cobar bombings. But this was the first real attack on that, that, that like it got into the, the, the public consciousness. And I, uh, my career ended in, in Afghanistan a couple of months uh, be- between, before the coast of bombing, where it was the worst, the worst attack on, on, in CIA history. And so uh, terrorism kind of buttressed my, my career. But in addition to trying to stop you know, uh, terrorists and putting nuclear weapons proliferators out of job and preventing Russian spies from stealing our secrets, I had to brief members of Congress. 
And so when we had members of Congress overseas, um, especially ones that were sitting on what's called HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. This is the, the congressional committee that oversees our, our intelligence services. And this is unique, by the way. Um, most countries don't have civilian oversight of their intelligence services. And to be, to be frank, I was pretty shocked by the caliber of our elected leaders. And a situation happened in Afghanistan where I was just pretty shocked. And I decided um, to run for Congress in my hometown. And so I, I left a job I was good at and I loved. I thought I could help the intelligence community in a different way and then ran for Congress um, for the 2010 cycle. I lost that, um, that election by 700 votes in a runoff, which is not a lot of votes, by the way. But in 2014, uh, when the opportunity came um, to run again, I did. And in that meantime, I helped start a cybersecurity company. So that's really where some of my, my, um, you know, my real kind of experience in technology began. Yeah. Well, you're exactly the type of person we love to have on this podcast because you've been an intelligence officer. So you've been out in the field, you know, uh, 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 executing uh, on national security objectives and, and missions. You've been a cybersecurity executive, so you understand technology and, uh, and, and small business. You've been a policy policymaker on Capitol Hill, and now you're a, a banker. So you're working with uh, uh, all sorts of different constituents uh, uh, in, in that role. So you, you're truly living on the intersection. So we're, we're, we're thrilled to have you uh, uh, on here. Uh, why did you decide to write the book? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Look, I, I decided to write the book because, you know, it, it's fascinating, like, I realize that some of the major issues that I had come to realize were major issues, the things that I I call generational defining challenges. I decided to write a book to help the reader go through the same experiences that I did to come to those conclusions. And, and the best example I use is, is China. So I left the CIA in 2009. And even then, when I left the CIA, I would have said that China is, is in essence, a regional, could be a regional player. They weren't a, a major. I wouldn't have called them even a near peer in, 2000, in 2009. Um, I didn't consider that China was probably our greatest a global challenge and didn't think they would be the ones that would be challenging us in, in great power competition. And, and so, so, and that was, that was a, a bad understanding. That was a, 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 in 2009, right? And so when I realized, okay, how did my opinion on these things change? What were the five or six events that happened? I said, oh, this is, this is an interesting way to tell these stories um, that, uh, that I think were important. And I also wrote the book because I think we have, a, we have about a decade to prevent the United States from being overtaken as the global superpower um, by the Chinese government. And, and that number is, is very specific of, of 10 years. And the only way that we're going to be able to prevent that from happening and going the way of the United Kingdom. Look, the United Kingdom, up until the middle of World War I, they had the greatest percentage and share of global GDP. Um, now it's only 3%, right? The United States surpassed them in the middle of World War I, and, and something similar could happen between us and China if we don't take actions today. And that's going to require 
the public sector and the private sector to work together because ultimately, um, I think we're in a new Cold War with, with the Chinese government. And the difference in this Cold War is that our adversary is four times our size. That wasn't the case with the Russians. And, and, and what's unique in this case also is we're frenemies, right? That the, 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 our economies, our cultures, our histories are intertwined in a way that us and, and the, the Soviets and now Russians never were. So, so that was part of the reason to write this book to say, hey, here are some really big challenges that we should, um, we should be talking about. Not some of the things that um, really um, spent where we spend most of our political time talking about. So first of all, I couldn't agree with you more on, on the, the challenge that China now represents in, in the time frame. I, I do think these next 10 years are going to be critical to uh, uh, establishing the balance of power, if you will, between uh, us and China uh, going forward in the long term. So uh, I want to pick up on your last comment there. You said, you know, you wanted to talk about certain things that maybe we weren't talking about in the national stage. You know, so so what are the the, the things, the topics, the issues uh, the challenges that you think we need to address as a country that we're not paying enough attention uh, uh, to here in this nation-state competition. Well, well, look, it starts with it starts with um, you know wrecking. Like, look, I will say that the threat that the Chinese government plays to our way of life, I think Republicans and Democrats agree on that. Um, I think the fact that the playing field. This, this new Cold War is going to be done on technology. It's going to be fought over technology. I think most people are starting to understand that or have an understanding of that. Now, what does all that mean and how do we, how do we prepare for that battle? That's where the debates need to go. And, and I would calculate it as simple as how do we take advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us? Um, how do we, you know, we know, look, uh, you know, beginning of, of February, uh, 2023, everybody's going to remember this as the, the period of the Chinese surveillance balloon, right? And, and so, so what's fascinating to me about that experiment and what happened is what could the Chinese government have been doing, especially if they assumed that that surveillance balloon was going to get captured at some point? Right. Like what they knew that whatever they were doing was so important that it was going to deal with the blowback. OK, could it have been they're doing something and testing some type of, of quantum communications? Now, that is me putting a hat on being like, you know, the, the worst case scenario. We have seen the Chinese government um, when it has come to quantum communications have a number of, of significant um, uh, moments in time with with their discoveries. Why should we care? Because if they achieve quantum computing, which uh, achieving quantum communications is an in indicative of, that's good. they're going to break all of our, our all of our encryption. Now, how do we get to a point where we have quantum resilient encryption in all of our sensitive areas? Um, we haven't gotten there yet, right? And I always use I use this. I was I was I was talking to a, a college class recently, and I brought up Y two K. And all the kids in the class, some of them, a lot of them looked at me like, oh, what's Y2K? The United States government, there was a special joint co congressional committee on Y2K. We spent $300 million in four years taking the year, turning a year in all of our systems 
from a two-digit year to a four-digit year. 300 million, four years, right? Um, in, in, in stealing quantum resilient encryption is going to take much longer. We know today we can program DNA the way we program computer code. How is that going to impact us? And and now, you know, I sit on the board of, of OpenAI. A chat GPT has taken the world by storm, and everybody's talking about how does how does uh, artificial intelligence impact our, our way of life? We need to be having conversations around how do we ensure these technologies not only uplift humanity, but how are we using them in the right way that freedom, civil liberties, openness are de- you know define these tools not what an authoritarian regime might try to have. So, so those are some of the issues we need to talk about, right? Uh, another one is, is based on the fact that U.S. economic and military dominance is no longer guaranteed. That's not my opinion. This was, this was a, a group in 2018 of, of diplomats, generals, academics, bipartisan way back then said well, this was this problem. And, and, and that is going to impact our way of life, and the, and and we have had the we America has have had the greatest um, quality of life in history because of that economic and military dominance. And so, how do we prevent that from further eroding? Um, those are those are important issues that we need to be debating. It's great. There's a lot to unpack there. I want, I want to come back and follow up on a couple of things. But first, first, the, my thesis, which you know, I think listeners have now heard on a couple of these different uh, calls, is that. We're entering into a nation state competition with China, a next Cold War, as, as you refer to it. Uh, 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 there's a certain comfort level that I think is misguided that, oh, we won the last Cold War. We know how to uh, 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 operate in this sort of you know, uh, nation state competition because uh, of then the point that I think you raised, which is commercial technology is going to be a key lever in this nation state competition. In the playbook that we had with the Soviet Union in the first Cold War when it came to our technology competition with them was really about government purpose-built technology, right? It was about who can get to the moon first, who can uh, build uh, missile defense systems first, who can uh, 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 advance nuclear weapons uh, uh, farther. You know, those were the technologies that that nation-state competition was fought over. In the playbook that the U.S. had for that was invest a bunch of money in R&D, see that money uh, uh, ultimately, uh, see those that those R and D efforts ultimately deliver uh, uh, technology progress. Have that technology progress sort of uh, carried to development by the big primes, you know, and, and and companies that sell only to the U.S. government. The U.S. government buys from them. That was a playbook that worked for us and worked well, and it was profitable for the uh, defense contractors, uh, uh, and it was good good for the country. To uh, uh, on your last comment or, or questions. You brought up quantum technology. You brought up engineered biology. You brought up uh, uh, AI with chat uh, 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 GPT. Those are all commercial technologies where the best and brightest minds in the United States are not working for Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, uh, uh, those sorts of companies in those areas. They're working for Microsoft. They're working for uh, uh, Google. They're working for, um, uh, uh, you know, pick your favorite biotech uh, 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 company. And for us to compete with China on those technologies, if those are the technology areas that are going to be key to economic and military leadership around the world, who's more advanced in that, the U.S. government has to develop a new playbook for how it interacts with commercial companies, how it sources technology, how it funds or creates incentives for uh, 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 those commercial companies to develop technologies in, in the 
best interest of the uh, U.S. government. How do you think about the U.S. government trying to, you know, change from sort of a, a world in which they're used to working with a small set of companies that, you know, understand them very well and do exactly what they say to a broader set of companies who have conflicting interests. They want to sell to commercial customers, consumer customers, international customers. Uh, uh, you know, is one, does the U.S. government recognize that that's the challenge going forward? To uh, uh, what's in the playbook of, uh, uh, for the U.S. government to to try and achieve that? Do you think? Look, Steve. So I, I agree with all of that, and 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 I think some of the challenges. I I think most senior leaders recognize the 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 difficulty of the task and the need that we have to evolve in some way. But but the the problem becomes how do you execute on that? How do you have a organization that's the largest organization in the world, the U.S. government, um, how do you evolve? And there's a number of, of, of really specific nuanced thing that has to be fixed. Um, we cannot, like, so, so if the public and the private sector are going to have to work together on this, we need to make sure, and, and, and let's take artificial intelligence. How is government data that is the the that is that is owned by the people, right? This is it, it's generated through tax revenue, all that. How do we use that in a way that great American companies can benefit from that? How do we ensure that all the wonderful research that our labs are doing are are able to be taken advantage of by by great American companies? Um, that's 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 one step. Another step is. How are we introducing this technology into the federal government in, in a quick way? Um, you know, I hate that a lot of my conversations always devolve into IT procurement, but IT procurement matters because if you have an amazing tool and you're not using it, then, then that's a big problem. And so, so unfortunately in the federal government, oftentimes the people purchasing that said good or service is different than the person using that good or service. And that disconnect prevents some of this great technology from, from being, being used. And people that have been around for a long time um, have, have an advantage and are able to take advantage of that, that organizational inertia. And so that's a super wonky answer to, to a question, but we have to fix how that works, right? Um, we also need to make sure that we're getting our best and brightest into the government. Here's what I've learned in my last two years being out in the private sector. There are a lot of great uh, people that have some, you know, they've sold their company or they've walked away from the company and they have some, these are, these are some of the, the world's smartest people on some technologies, but they would love to come work for the government <clears throat> for a year and a half or two years. But for that person to come in at a senior level, <clears throat> excuse me, for, for that person to come in at a senior level, they would have to get rid of all their complicated financial instruments that have led them to be successful. A lot of times they wouldn't even need to take a salary uh, from the government. We have to be able to figure out how do we take advantage of some of our great stars that way. Um, and so those are just two specific examples, three specific examples, getting more data, being able to purchase things quicker. Oh, and by the way, the government doesn't know how to buy software. You know, the, the, look, we are, we are, software is the new hardware, right? right? We know how to buy missiles. We know how to buy tanks. 
We Where, where's like, our bill of materials? Yeah, one hundred percent, right? Oh, and by the way, I think a lot of people thought once we transition to the cloud, everything is going to be cheaper. Uh, no, it's actually going to potentially be more expensive because you're using more data in order to drive decision making. And so, so we have to be thinking better about how we consume software and 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 start buying software in a different way versus like we're buying a tank or a plane that takes 10 years to build. Those are all great points. So we've seen Congress, the White House, U.S. government maybe uh, is, is the right uh, uh, descriptor here. We've seen them take some steps now in the right direction. The CHIPS Act that uh, passed recently, by the way, to bipartisan support in an era when it's very hard to get any uh, bipartisan support on anything in D.C. right now. You know, the, the CHIPS Act had some bipartisan uh, support, and it's, uh, I think, got some good ideas and some good steps to help us in the microelectronics area. There, there, the Inflation Reduction Act had some things in it that help with our uh, uh, competitiveness as a country. There, you're seeing uh, uh, some programs that have been sort of existing for a long time across, you know, both uh, parties and administrations get re, uh, uh, reinvigorated, whether it's the DOE uh, uh, loan program or the DFC uh, uh, um, to do things to help stimulate, uh, you know, manufacturing and uh, uh, factories and, and, and mining sites being built. So, so it feels like the U.S. government is starting to understand this, starting to turn the sort of slow tanker that is the uh, uh, U.S. government in, in, in the right direction here. Um, uh, we talked about what the, uh, your ideas about what the U.S. government can do. What can the commercial sector do? Do you think you know to to be a better partner? Because to your point. Um, the commercial sector, I think, wants to help. I, I firmly believe the commercial sector is patriotic. Uh, 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 they want to help the uh, U.S. government uh, in its mission of uh, 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 securing our, uh, our country and providing uh, uh, economic and military leadership around the world. Uh, uh, but uh, they don't often understand how to help. You know, and so what are your thoughts there on what they can do to help? Yeah, and, and look, and I would I would say the commercial. I'd break the commercial se sector up this way. Um, you have some of the big primes that are used to doing this and know how to do it. You have some of the, 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 the uh, I don't want to call them legacy tech companies, but technology companies that have been around for a long time, you know, Oracle, Microsoft, companies like that. Those two groups know how to engage and interact with the federal government. Um, but what we need are the, the folks that are in kind of the startup or growth phase that are willing to engage with the government because that's where a lot of the cutting edge technology is. Now, the problem there is they don't understand, a lot of these startup companies don't understand the sales cycle of the government. And a lot of their investors are, are reticent to engage with the federal government because look, it takes a long time to get a contract with the federal government. And so, so my, my, uh, my, statement to the folks that are funding these governments. Understand that sale, the sale, the government has a sales cycle just like anything, any any other entity. Do a better job of understanding it so that you're not afraid of it. And two, uh, making sure these companies recognize that selling into the federal government or working with the federal government is something that's important and needed. And it's ultimately going to make sure that we keep this environment and way of life that has allowed great companies 
um, to to grow here in the United States. And so so those are really two philosophical issues that have to be willing to engage. The the other thing is a lot of these companies needs to accept. Um, let's step back. Knowing what we know now about social media, we probably would have made different decisions in the 2000s. And, and one of those we probably would not have done was to carve social media companies out of the Section 230 of the Communication De- Decency Act, right? Um, because everyone's like, oh, this is different. It's going to prevent, you know, if, if we put the same uh, restrictions on social media that we do to television stations and newspapers, um, it's not going to be able to grow. Well, that was that was illogical you know, over time. And, and, and guess what? Nobody probably would have thought in the 2000s that social media could, one of the things that it would have happened, would have done was lead to teenage girls cutting themselves more, right? Like that's just so shocking and, and so sad. So let's not, not make the same mistake with artificial intelligence, right? Um, listen, let, we made some of the similar mistakes with software in general that, you know, made it a little bit easier to, to develop software that that wasn't secure. And and so 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 we need those companies that are on the cutting edge to embrace this idea of like hey, here's where the industry should be going. Here are some of the the left and right bounds and 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 aid lawmakers in understanding the technology so that we can create an environment to allow that technology to flourish. Really well said. I want, I want to close by coming back to uh, a concept that I mentioned in the description of your book, because I really liked it when I read the book, pragmatic idealism. Tell me what that is, what that means, and and, and, and sort of how, how to think about it, applying it to the conversation we just had. Sure. For me, you know, my, my, so my dad's black, my mom's white. Um, they, they got married in 1970 and moved to uh, San Antonio, Texas in 1971. It was not in vogue to be an interracial couple in the 70s in South Texas, right? And and look, the, the crap my mom and dad had to put up with is shocking. But but through all those experiences, my dad always taught me, my brother, and my sister to have a PMA, a positive mental attitude, right? If I always say, if, if my dad can have a PMA when he's trying to sell to someone who is calling him the N-word, I can have a PMA um, in the things that I'm and I'm doing. And and so so I've always learned that. And so for me, the idealism piece of that phrase is how do you, we should be achieving and striving for a vision that improves quality of life for everybody, the most amount of people possible, right? But we have to be realistic of where we are so that we can try to get to that future state, right? And so that's where the pragmatic uh, comes in. Accept where you are now, because if you don't have a clear understanding of your starting point, you're not going to be able to get to your destination. And so, so we oftentimes, and, and I, and I see, you know, some of our political debates with the far left and the far right, they're talking about some idealized vision or some of it, like, it's, it's not grounded in reality. We gotta be, we gotta be grounded in reality that requires us being, get, doing an honest self-assessment and, and not only of where we are, but what our capabilities and what our tools and what our problems are. And so for me, that's kind of how I, 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 I've encapsulated that thinking into this, this, this philosophy of pragmatic idealism, um, impact the greatest number of people possible and, and understand exactly where you're starting from in order to do that. 
I think that's a great message to, to end our conversation with. As I mentioned in the introduction, if you want to hear more about pragmatic idealism, you can read Will's book, American Reboot, An Ideal's Guide to Getting Big Things Done, which is available on Amazon. Will, is there any other place you want to point our listeners to in terms of uh, your ideas and what you're Yeah, go to my website, willbeheard.com. That's H-U-R-D. Um, sign up. I do a newsletter every other week called The Brief, and I always try to give common sense perspectives on current events, national security and technology. And so look, I, I just wrote about that, um, that, that metallic, um, that, that the metal that could go from a solid state to a liquid state. I don't know if you've seen that video, Steve, it's crazy, right? The stuff that we're able to do and, and using, using magnets to affect that, how that's going to impact internal medicine, how that can impact uh, manufacturing. It's just crazy how fast things are moving. But but I talk about all those things all in under five minutes, right? So you get a quick taste in a, in a short way. Terrific. Well, Will, thank you so much for joining us in the intersection today. This is Steve Bauscher, and thank you for listening. Produced by HeartCast Media.